Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned. This podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern variety. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice you can make. Don't say we didn't warn you. Um, and yeah, I am going to be that asshole who like overpronounces all the stuff today. I that's mean, me. that's my role today. Live your life, babe. Yeah. But I will also name it right now that my very first Spanish teacher was from Argentina. The second one I had was from Peru and the third one was from Mexico. So my accent is all fucked up. Live your life. It is what it is. Let's do this. Shakespeare show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Hamlet. Yeah. We should have our own theme song. We, just we do. No, we no, but like, it. yes, but just for like the <laughs> Whamlet part. Oh, yeah. 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 We should have like a little like tritone for Whamlet or something. Anyway, sure. Uh, <laughs> okay. Hi, friends. Welcome here to the place where we do things. And those things that we do are we talk about plays. Um, and every time we do this, we talk about a different play. And sometimes that play is by Shakespeare. And sometimes that play is not by Shakespeare. And this yeah. week, it is not by Shakespeare. And also this week, it's a 101 level episode. Yeah. 101 level is introductory stuff. Some weeks it's more comprehensive 101, like introductory stuff than others. This week we're going to get very comprehensive because we are embarking on our very first Spanish Golden Age play. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Um, so anyway, we'll we'll tell you everything you need to know about the play, uh, which is Fuente Obahuna. Uh, and we will give you our opinions and we will give you some other pertinent information you need to know if you're a novice to Spanish Golden Age Theater and Fuente Obahuna in particular. Yeah. How's that? How's that for being different from the spiel we usually do? I love it. I think that's great. (laughs) Um, Nailed it. Yeah. But before we do that, Uh uh, we're going to tell you about some shit that we like. Uh, Hell yeah. And this week it looks like maybe um, you're going to get some like serious shit, but then also some like fun shit. So nice balance this time. So it's time for happy hour. Um, I am going to recommend this week in, in keeping with the, the, the Spanish um, I'm thinking language here, not like national nationality. Um, If you follow a great Instagram follow is the teaching with Corazon Instagram account. And it's just that it is at teaching with Corazon C O R A Z O N um, which Corazon, if you're not familiar, means heart. Um, but it is, uh, the creators of it are, are, uh, Latinx content creators and they are educators and they have annual seminars on how to decolonize, uh, Dia de los Muertos, which is coming up, um, just after Halloween. Um, they have one night for white people and one night for everybody else. Um, but they also offer, and they offer those at varying levels of donations and prices, sometimes free, sometimes not. Uh, they have re- just really cool. They're a great follow um, to help you keep, you know, the the Latinx community in your mind as an educator. So give them a follow. It's a good one. I can dig it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I'm about self-care this week, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I'm sure that I've said this at some point in the last six years, but I'm going to say it again. Find your local massage school. Get yourself some, some like, sweet, sweet massage self-care. Massage schools will charge you very, very little because they're students. <laughs> and also, because they're students, you're not allowed to tip. So you can get a 90 minute massage for sometimes like 40 bucks. Um, Mm. And that is a hell of a deal. And if you have a body, it probably sometimes feels different than you would like it to feel. So I'm just, you know, Mm -hmm. massages. I'm, I'm a fan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Get a massage. Give, give a student, give a massage student the benefit of practicing on your, yeah. sad tired body <laughs> yeah yeah and uh yeah and save yourself a little money and and give yourself some self-care sounds absolutely. great absolutely big fan yeah. we love that um all right now it's time to meet the contemporary this week we are talking about the very prolific lope de vega lope de vega this is your life kind of can we, uh-huh. before we like get into that, can oh, we talk about yeah. how Lope de Vega is like only part of his name and also it's like weirdly only the middle part of his name? Yeah. His full name is Felix Lope de Vega y yeah. Carpio. Yeah. It's, he's got a lot of names. Yes. Um, I've noticed that as a trend uh, amongst the like naming of Spanish Golden Age yeah, playwrights. Yeah, yeah. You'll see that quite a lot. They like the first name at least is dropped, if not the first and second name. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, or like just pieces of it are, yeah. are pulled out. But, you know, Spanish language tradition is. has so many names. Like, really right. just take your pick. <laughs> take right. your pick of the names. Uh, all right. So Lope de Vega was born on November 25th, 1562. And he died August 27th, 1635. Mm. Um, Lope Felix de Vega Carpio is one of the foundational poets and playwrights of the Spanish Golden Age. He was one of the most prolific writers of the time, writing literally thousands of individual works, um, and was even nicknamed a monster of nature by Miguel de Cervantes, um, who you might know from Don Quixote fame. Mm. Uh, he is famous for being a a combination of a rogue and a womanizer. I mean, by all accounts, this dude was horny AF and like could not keep it in his pants at all. Um, but also he was a dad, you know, and, um, and he lived a married life and then also entered the priesthood. Uh, he was also an inquisitor. And a novelist and a playwright and a poet. He was, I mean, you know, multitudes in one, but like seriously horny though. <laughs> From I mean, everything I've read about the guy. Who among <laughs> like us such a womanizer? Was not seriously yeah, yeah, horny. You know? you know? Yeah, I just it figures so heavily in his biographies, like all of the biographies <laughs> are like, yeah, this dude was a womanizer. Oh yeah, this dude was a total womanizer. Amazing. Like I yeah, it is kind of amazing. Well, he began writing um, super, super young, and then he left school at 15 and entered the University of Al- Alcala. Uh-huh. Alcala oh, de Henares. 
Enares. Enares. Yeah. Okay. I can read Spanish. I cannot say it. Um, So he went to university uh, when he was 15 to study, and then he studied math and he studied astrology, um, particularly the astrology part. He studied with Juan Bautista Labania. Uh, who was Philip II's chief cosmographer, um, which like way to way to have the job of being the chief cosmographer to right. Philip II. If you're wondering why Philip II sounds familiar, he married Mary Tudor. Um, there we Mary. go. Yeah, there it is. OK, they were married for uh, a hot second before she died. Um, he also studied the liberal arts. What up liberal arts with Juan de Cordoba. Um, so in then in 1583, he entered the Spanish Navy uh, and then, you know, um, as one does when you enter the Spanish Navy, you basically like become a pirate and like go wild for a minute. OK, so he <laughs> yep. had he had love affairs. He served uh, a term in jail for libel. Um, he was banished from court for eight years. He spent two years in exile Um he had some more love affairs. He had some more scandals. And he also, you know, like wrote a lot. <laughs> like all through the time. Yeah. Like the writing. whole, the whole time, like all this is happening, but also he's like writing. Um, so then he, in 1614, he joined the priesthood after his favorite son and his wife died. Um, and I, I would just like to pause for a second and imagine the hilarity of favorite governing both son and wife so like his favorite son and his favorite wife died and then he was like i guess i'll go be priest uh which like you know maybe since he's such a womanizer um so then like he was priest but he kept having the sex because horny um then he had an existential crisis as one does and started writing slightly more profound and devout things and then in 1635 uh another one of his favorite sons died and then his youngest daughter was abducted um and then he died of scarlet fever in august of 1635 r.i.p that is wild poor one out for a real one Damn, what a life. Uh, so by the time of his death, he had written about 500 plays. Jeez Louise. I know. <laughs> That's too many as plays. As well as sonnets, three novels, four novellas, and nine epic poems. And we're sitting over here being like, Shakespeare Shakespeare wrote 38 plays and two epic poems and a bunch of sonnets. OMG. Like mm-hmm. every single one of these Spanish Golden Age authors puts all of the early modern playwrights to shame or the English early modern playwrights to shame. Yeah. So importantly in his material, he established, he amongst a couple of other prominent playwrights of the time established the structure, like the literal structure for Spanish theater, developing three act comedia plays. Um, Basically everything in, uh, in every play that in Spanish was called a comedia. Uh, It had nothing to do really with comedy. Right. It just Um, means like story. Right, right. Um, and play, play, yeah. story, play, acted, something like that. Um, yeah. As well as the source material for the construction of, of the dramatic conflicts. So, um, but also uh, he and I think I'll, I'll get to this a little bit later, but like the, the, the actual buildings themselves started mm-hmm. to be purpose built mm-hmm. um, because of the way that these playwrights had started writing. It was sort of a self-fulfilling sort of synergetic cycle. Um, but I will talk about that later in my own section. But some of these titles you might know 
are Jess, do you want me to say the Spanish and you want to say the English or do yeah. you want to try your hand at saying yeah. some of the Spanish? No, you you say okay. the Spanish. I don't I don't okay. want to I I don't I don't want to offend anyone out there with my terrible Spanish as a, you know, monolingual white woman. That's not <laughs> you okay. you've got the chops. You go ahead. <laughs> I will give it a try, but also I just really like speaking Spanish. Uh, Los Locos de Valencia. Madness in Valencia. El Acero de Madrid. The Steel of Madrid. Ooh. El Perro del Hortelano. The Gardener's Dog. Fuente of Ahuna, which is why we're here today. Which means sheep fountain? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Great. Uh, El Anzuelo de Fenisa. Fenisa's Hook. El Mejor Alcalde, El Rey. The best mayor, the king. <laughs> this next one I really like. La Dama Boba. The stupid lady or the lady fool. <laughs> and finally, El Castigo Sin Veganza. Venganza. Punishment. Punishment without revenge. Yes. Sounds like a revenge tragedy if you ask me. Yeah. El Castigo Sin Venganza. There it is. Um, I'm into it. I'm so into it. I, and these are the ones um, I, this is again, you heard us when we said 500 plays, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, this yep, is yep, by yep, no yep. means an exhaustive list. These are some of the most popular ones and the ones most likely, according to Wikipedia, to have translations in English somewhere in the world the... Uh, floating around in the Internet. Um, so Lope de Vega, that was your life. Short and sweet, kind of. Except he did live to a ripe old age of 72. Yeah, a lot um, longer than Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, it's time for our five word unhelpful title. Mine is, I took a little liberties, mine is six words this week. It is too much patriarchy, not enough sheep. Mine is this play needs sheep, bro. (laughs) I was promised sheep and there are no sheep. There are no sheep. Ovehuna, you would think, but no, just the name of the place. Not, not a descriptor of the place with the sheep. (laughs) At least not anymore. Maybe there once were sheep. Who knows? Um, all right, let's talk dramatis personae. Yeah. Okay. Lots of characters so, in this play. well, lots of characters. Not in very the play, many. Okay. Yeah. But not very many in the summary. Yeah. Not very many in the summary, or terribly important, really. Aside from yeah. these. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Okay. So we are going to start with Fernan Gomez de Guzman, who is a soldier. Mm-hmm. Then we have Laurencia, a villager, and Pasquala, who's also a villager. We have Frondoso, a villager who's in love with Lorencia. I love him. He's my favorite. He is a pure little cinnamon roll, and I love him. Um, Then we have Esteban, who is a villager and is also Lorencia's daddy. Like actual Uh, father. Sorry, not like he's her daddy. No, he's he's (laughs) her 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 biological (laughs) father. (laughs) Um, Then there's Mango. Not to be confused with Mango, but Mango, M-E-N-G-O, a mm-hmm. villager. And Jacinta, who is also a villager. And then we have names that every historian should know. Mm-hmm. Ferdinand and Isabella, the king and queen of Spain. Yeah, and they're like barely, like they're actual characters, but they're like barely relevant. And yeah. they almost weren't going to make it into the summary. Anyway, um, yeah. Aubrey, why the hell should this play be so goddamn popular? Uh, because it's okay one it's based on a true story which i know you're gonna get to in your notes later but like it's based it's like 
true crime drama, right? It's based on a, an actual peasant revolt. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all about like these townsfolk rising up against injustice and the violence of their state, which is like really fucking relevant always, right? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, it's really relevant. The only thing I can think of in this English speaking world of ours is that this play, um, along with many, many of the other Spanish uh, plays, that are contemporaneous with Shakespeare and and his you know fellows in England is just that um, English speaking theaters don't produce them because they're in Spanish right like even when there are good English translations like I don't know what it is but not very many make the crossover um, I've seen I've seen two productions of Spanish Golden Age dramas one was because of the MFA company that preceded ours they did Fuente Ovejuna and I saw Life Is a Dream. By Calderon. Oh yeah, like, that's a, that's a very very popular. And that's one. a yeah, that's a very very popular one. But like other than that, I have yet to find an English speaking regional theater that regularly produces Spanish Golden Age plays. Um, and I don't know if that's like again, if it's an aversion to the translations, if mm-hmm. it's because the subject matter is pretty fucking relevant, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, so I I don't know. I'm I'm puzzled as to why it's not more popular. Yeah, shout out to our friends at Hedgepig in um, New York for their expanding the canon initiative. There are totally. a lot, not a lot, but there are more um, mm-hmm. female uh, Spanish Golden Age dramatists than there mm-hmm. are um, English Renaissance and or before and or you know uh, even much later than that um so maybe we'll start to see some from them that would be yeah a delight um you want to do a summary hell yeah let's do this Um, All right, so we are now going to summarize Fuente Ovejuna for you in a segment that this week we're calling Fuente Ovejuna is the name of the town. (laughs) Okay, Uh, in Act 1, Fernan Gomez de Guzman, a commander of the Order of Calatrava, is arguing that that the army should conquer Ciudad Real in the name of the rulers of Portugal. In Fuente Ovejuna, which again is a place, mm-hmm. uh, Fernan tries to ca- kidnap two women, Laurencia and Pascuala, but they escape. The king and queen of Spain are annoyed that the Ciudad Real has been captured and they want it back. Laurencia meets her lover, Frondoso, in the forest. Frondoso hides when Fernan approaches and a- again attempts to force himself on Laurencia. Frondoso takes Fernan's crossbow and uses it to save Laurencia. Uh, In Act 2, Fuente Ovejuna's peasants are having a meeting when Fernan rolls up and demands Lorencia's father Esteban let him take her away as his concubine. Esteban is like, uh, no. (laughs) And (laughs) Fernan is like, how dare you insult me in such a vulgar and terrible way? Fuck you. Um... A messenger arrives begging Fernand to go back to Ciudad Real because the Spanish forces have just reclaimed it. After he leaves, Lorencia and Pascuala decide to go on the run with their friend Mango. While they are running away, they meet another peasant girl, Jacinta, who's running from Fernand's servants. When Mango stops to protect her, they are both captured. The men whip Mango while they rape Jacinta before handing her over to Fernand. 
Elsewhere, Esteban agrees to let Lorencia and Frondoso get married. Their wedding is interrupted by Fernan, who arrives to arrest Frondoso for the aforementioned, like, crossbow threatening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In Act 3, which is the final act in a Spanish Golden Age play, Fuente of Ojuna's men are trying to decide how to proceed against Fernan's oppression. Lorencia has been attacked and beaten, and Fernan has attempted to rape her again. But she escaped before things could get that far. She chastises the villagers for not rescuing her, and they get inspired to kill Fernan. Frondoso is about to be hanged, but a group of villagers enters, rescues him, and kills Fernan and one of his servants. A surviving servant runs off to tittle-tattle <laughs> to the royals. Um, a magistrate arrives to figure out what happened and dole out some punishment. And as he approaches, the villagers decide not to rat each other out, but just to say that Fuente Ovahuna did it. The magistrate tortures men, women, and children on the rack, but gives up when he can't get a straight answer. The king and queen roll up and issue pardons all around when the villagers finally tell the whole story. The end. I really like this play. I, Mm -hmm. like you, have seen it one time by a student company many 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 thousands of years ago it was a while ago it was almost a decade ago Uh, yep um and i had remembered it being like drama and me too it was very heavy but when i read it uh, a couple weeks ago it's really funny it's really funny so yeah it's a little contains multitudes this play anyway you want to read a little bit yeah, yeah. What scene did you have in mind? Act three, scene four-ish. You said uh, act three, scene four? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Esteban, Frondoso, Mango, Cuadrado. You like Frondoso. Do you want to read Frondoso? Yeah. Why don't, why don't you be Esteban? Because he speaks okay. the most. And then I'll just be all the villagers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That works for me. Yeah. Cool. I can't wait to see what voices you do. <laughs> I'm going to do some voices. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. Here we go. It won't be long before the crown sends someone to investigate the, going on, the goings on round here of late. And with the King Lodge near our town, we ought devise while there's still time some pretext no one can dismiss. Your thoughts? Claim unto death that this was Fuente Ovahuna's crime and not have anyone confess. By us, then, all must be agreed. It's Fuente Ovahuna's deed. Is this how we will answer? I, I, I! Why don't I act like I've the task of the investigator now, so I might best instruct you how to face the questions he will ask. Here, let's have Mango be the first upon the rack. You couldn't choose a frailer guy? I'll only use you to rehearse. Then do your worst. Who killed the town's commander? You? Oh, Fuente Ovahuna, sir. Don't make me torture, you vile cur. Kill me and it would still be true. Confess, thief. I do as I'm told. So? Fuente Ovahuna, there. Pull tight. It's nothing I can't bear. We'll foul up any trial they hold. What are you doing dallying here? Quadrado, what's so troublesome? The crown's investigators come. Hide quickly while the coast is clear. A captain also guards the man. 
the devil watches back this day. We all know what we have to say. They're seizing everyone they can, as hardly any soul has hid. There's no need fear should make us weak. You who killed the commander, speak. Who? Fuente Ovahuna did! And they all scatter. <laughs> I don't know why Mango's a Muppet, but he is. <laughs> he definitely is now. It's a very strong choice. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> oh, Lord. All right. Uh, let's talk uh, about, you know, some shit. All the things. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So we're going to start with, um, you know, what the hell is the Spanish Golden Age? Because yes. uh, if you're here, you might not know. You probably don't know. I didn't know. Um, so I just want to say shout out to our good friend Molly Ceramet because I am pretty sure that just about everything I'm about to tell you uh, comes from some of her teaching materials. So Thanks, Molly. Yeah. Um, so the time period uh, of the Spanish Golden Age is like roughly 1590 to less roughly 1681. Um, but, you know, dates are fuzzy. Uh, it also geographically refers to Spain, but then also all of its territories in the Americas. So we've got Mexico, we've got all of Central America, we've got a bunch of the islands in the Caribbean, um, and then most of what is now the Southwest United States and Florida. Okay, so when we say Spanish Golden Age, we are we are not talking about uh, just within the confines of the country of Spain in Europe. It's it's everywhere. So the theater during the Spanish Golden age produced anywhere from like 10,000 to 30,000 plays in this not quite 100 years okay so by contrast (laughs) the english theater during the same ish time period produced only about 2,500 plays most of which of course don't survive today we've got something like 573 extant plays yeah so 10 to 30,000. Um, I don't, I don't know what they were doing in Spain. Y'all. When did they even take breaks? Well, I mean, Lope de Vega, right. He was sleeping and pooping (laughs) and, you know, whining and dining and wiving and swiving. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I damn. Yeah. Um, so in the Spanish golden age, there, there were three major genres of drama. Okay. So we've got religious plays, we've got public theater, and then we've got theater at court, uh, which I think Aubrey's going to talk a little bit more about what those are and what they mean. Um, then we've got, you know, some, some big themes, uh, in, in Spanish golden age drama. So honor is, uh, you know, maybe the biggest one, you know, theater was used as a metaphor for life. So honor was then like represented in a number of ways on stage um for example you know like issues of reputation um you know right versus wrong uh so on and so forth it's also reputation and honor uh juxtaposed against disillusionment and hypocrisy we see that definitely at work in fuente Ovahuna. yeah um we're gonna talk about like we're gonna have honorable conduct and when we say honorable we mean christian Hmm. uh christian conduct is enforced by the public and then like if you lose your honor you're gonna live in shame and despair um a huge number of plots from these plays focus on the fear of lost reputation on masculine honor which is derived from women's chastity because that's fucking fair um you know women like 
are kind of in control of their men's honor, but gender roles are like not really challenged in any way. Um, poverty is everywhere, but the plays are filled with like picturesque scenes and beautiful churches and like high status courts and, you know, all this fun, beautiful things. Um, however, the playwrights uh, from the Spanish Golden Age are also throwing in a bit of cynicism here and there. We're going to get the, the stock character of the Gracioso, which is the disillusioned clown. Love it. Um, who will make his way through all of the plays and survive uh, and will never even consider what is right and what is wrong because clown. Yeah. <laughs> so those that's like the, the big sort of like broad strokes outlines of uh, Spanish yeah. golden age drama. Well, and um, this is Spain. So when you say Christian, we really mean Catholic, right? We like, certainly do. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just like the honor, the, the Christian definition of honor. It's, it's Catholic Christian. Mm -hmm. um, so just bearing that in mind as well. Yeah. Um, do you want to hear about the real life Fuente Ovojuna? Yes, I do. Okay. Hit me. So the historical incident took place in 1476, mm -hmm. um, but Lope de Vega didn't write his play until 1614. I don't think we said that at the outset. 1614 is when this play was written. Oh, um, yeah. If that helps you contextualize in your brain kind of where we are in time but the the historical thing happens in 1476 okay so just a couple of years before the events of the play princess isabella the first of castile marries prince ferdinand the second of aragon um and thus you know joins together the two major kingdoms of spain castile and aragon um and this also enables the eventual conquest against spain's muslim moors and their subsequent expulsion from the country because catholics and you know ferdinand and isabella man yep 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 Yep. Um, so a couple of years after Isabella comes to her throne, uh, Ciudad Real, which means royal city, uh, was attacked by knights of the Order of Calatrava under the leadership of its grandmaster, who was 20 years old. Um, and his name is Rodrigo Tellez mm -hmm. Giron. Yep. Um, he is, in fact, a character in Fuente Ovahuna, uh, but he did not make it into the summary because he is super uh, on the fringes of things. Um, OK, so the city, uh, Ciudad Real, is of strategic importance due to its location near the border of Castile. So it was during this invasion that uh, our our lovely rapist friend, uh, Fernan Gomez de Guzman, was killed by the villagers of Fuente Ovahuna after he treated them poorly by, like, you know, raping and pillaging and mm -hmm. being a shitbag. And after they could not find uh, any single guilty party, Ferdinand pardoned the villagers of Fuente Ovahuna. And that is that is historically what happened. So yeah. And that's yeah. basically what <laughs> That's that's Lope the play. Vega puts on the play, like yeah. puts on stage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's essentially that. Yeah. Uh take us away. What else what else you got, girl? Yeah. So I was thinking about uh I mean, yes, there are very there are play specific things that are like, you know, your buck basket scene, which to me is the torture. All that torture that's gotta happen. Yep. Um, seems like a really tough challenge to stage, so like bearing that in mind, but also I wanted us to think about the um, just like the the performance 
culture in Spain and how it's different and or similar to what we always talk about in uh, English, the English um, play going scene at the time. Very so good. I'm going to talk about I'm going to talk a little bit about that because um, I, I like I am just fascinated by how um, regimented and regulated and organized um, Spanish, the Spanish theater scene was like, um, wow, wow. Uh, and like, I don't know, you know, to the, to the theater's detriment. I don't know. I don't know if it's like the, the freewheeling, like crazy open market in, in England at the time was better or worse. Um, but it's certainly different. Uh, it's certainly different in Spain. Um, on a number of fronts and the theater structure itself. I want to talk a little bit about that. And then I also want to talk about the issue of translation Mm -hmm. Um, because for those of us who speak English predominantly um, and have some passing Spanish, um, you got to, you got to read the play in English and already there's like some, you know, some barriers in between you and the, the quote unquote original text. So, okay. Spanish golden age theater was hella organized and regulated. Por ejemplo, after 1603, only licensed companies could work in Spain, and the licenses were really, really limited and hard to get. Unemployed actors had to join Compañías de la Legua, which means companies of language, um, similar to a playing company that we have talked about uh, in happening at the same time in England. Um, and they performed kind of all over the countryside, so they were like a touring troupe, right? Companies could not perform in one place for more than two months annually. So they couldn't stay put for longer than two months before moving on every single year. Um, And only one company was permitted to perform at any particular location. Hmm. So unlike English culture at this time, the actors in Spain were also still accepted in church. They could still take communion and they were generally still considered to be upstanding citizens, more or less. As opposed to in England at the time, actors kind of fell under the like poor and vagabond acts and were considered like the dregs of society. Um, so, so actors in Spain had a little bit more social status and slightly more respect. By 1615, so just over a decade later, hired companies were made up of actor managers called autores, um, actors and apprentices, and they were subject to all these government rules. These companies were licensed by the Royal Council and highly paid to perform autos sacramentales, um, which are like little religious scenes as well, both in court and at public theaters. Um, and and what Jess brought up about the three genres of theater in Spain, um, Spain was one of the few places at this time where uh, purely religious plays were still happening and hadn't mm-hmm. totally, the theater scene hadn't completely shifted to just secular topics and secular theater. Um, Spain maintained their religious theater. Think like, you know, medieval morality plays in England, mm-hmm. that type of stuff um, was still very active and, and a huge part of the body of work uh, of those tens of thousands of plays being produced at this time were, were religious ones. Actors generally worked for their actor managers under like one to two year contracts. Like the fact that they had contracts at all just boggles my mind. I'm like, wow, did they? Wow, they really did. Um, a typical schedule for these actors, like, listen to this. This is bananas. A typical schedule for these actors, they studied their role from 2 a.m. to 9 a.m., so a good seven hours in the morning. Yikes. They rehearse with their company until noon, so three hours. They take a short little break to eat, and then they perform until 7 p.m. What, 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 when do they sleep? What the fuck? 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when did they sleep? <laughs> when? Oh my fucking God. Like, what a fucking day. And also, can you imagine, like, once they had gotten used to that, like, the amount of information their brains could just, like, download, like, Matrix oh level? Oh God. No. It's so impressive. And, like, no. just stressing me out to look at. Like, I'm, I'm, ugh. Um, here's a fun fact, too. Women were licensed to perform mm-hmm. on the Spanish stage starting in 1587. This mm-hmm. was a controversial thing, but it definitely happened. Um, it remained controversial until 1599 when a royal decree slightly shifted that and said that only women, uh, women actors married to male company members, uh, other actors basically, could be those performing. So you had to be married. As of 1599, you had to be married lady and married to mm-hmm. an actor in the company to be able to perform um, but it was not at un- unusual at all to see a woman on the public stage in Spain, um, whereas it was unusual a lot yeah. <laughs> in England at this time. <laughs> yep. Um, outside of guild halls and like private performances, you were not going to see a lady on stage. Nope. Um, men and women could not sit together in the theater. So like theater goers were not, it was not a co-ed situation. They were separated. And I'll talk about that a little bit more about like how the theater was structured. But men were able to be in the courtyard and the side stands and the benches or the central stands. The women had to be like a floor up in these little kind of rooms called casuelas. Um, The only place where they were allowed to integrate was down in the chamber corridors of the theater. So like, I don't know, children were not allowed to attend the theater just straight up not allowed. Um, audience paid fees at different points. They paid a fee at the entrance. They tipped the quote unquote brotherhood or the beneficiary of whatever um, charity. Uh, a lot of the playhouses were like, I wouldn't say they were like state owned or church owned maybe, but like the the proceeds of a lot of the uh, theater money went to a charity and not to the theater company um, because of the state, because they said that's what they said you had to do. Um, the theater company itself rarely received more than about 20% of the total take of a mm. show. Mm. Yeah. Um, and in university towns, it was forbidden to perform on weekdays so that it wouldn't distract the students. <gasps> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like hella regulated, like so many rules. Um, oh, and and like an uh, like an English playhouse, you could also pay a little bit extra to get a cushion for your butt to sit on and watch the play comfortably. Nice. Um, so that didn't change. Uh, <laughs> I just like don't distract the students. No kids allowed. Men and women can't sit together. It's it's, it's bizarre. <laughs> um, or just different. I shouldn't judge it like that. It's just different. It's just a different culture. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about how the theater was arranged how the performance space architecture was it was a semi-thrust um open air configuration sounds naughty (laughs) (laughs) it was an open air configuration um and and i say semi because uh the um the stage was a the protrusion into the audience was a little bit shallower (laughs) it's just sounding dirtier and dirtier baby (laughs) i'm just Digging that dirty hole. Yep. Um, that's that's anyway, what you this... did because it was thrust into the. Uh-huh. <laughs> so anyway, the stage Shut platform up. was a little shallower um, than than what you might see uh, in an English playhouse, um, but it was still kind of surrounded on three sides by audience, which is a little bit shallower. Um, 
at first they were a little more improvised spaces. Uh, it, they were courtyards of houses or inns um, where a stage with some background scenery was like put along one side and then the three remaining sides and balconies of that place served as like the public galleries uh, and the remaining spectators could be in what we might call a pit right in the middle where, where groundlings might be, but there were chairs there. So think of like places like the Blackfriars um, or uh, some of the inns uh, in London, uh, some of the like law school right. inns middle, and things middle like temple that. Yeah, Gray's places Inn. kind of like that are, are a little more similar. Um, so don't think of the globe. Think of like what would the Blackfriars be if it didn't have a roof? which is kind of <laughs> kind of like kind of like what this sounds and looks like from the few pictures sure. I've been able to see. There aren't that many of these buildings that actually survive on, uh, right now. Um, the, the most accurate one is uh, in Almagro, uh, which is just a few hours outside of Madrid. What was so funny? Well, there aren't that many of these that survive right now, as if oh, there might be sorry. more that survive later. <laughs> <laughs> it was You're just right. it was a, a funny construction of phrase that, that it tickled my funny bone oh yes yeah my bad um, <laughs> yeah uh so um permanent theaters started to be built to look this way uh since it was such a successful like improvised space uh, and that was starting uh in like 1570s 1580s um and they were called Corrales de Comedias, uh, and they, they maintained that basic structure. So they used three kinds of scenic background. They had a facade. They had uh, curtains concealing the facade, <laughs> where um, when the location wasn't terribly important, they just put curtains up. Nice. Uh, and then they had uh, medieval-type mansions, which were sometimes erected on the stage. <laughs> erected. Um and they began incorporating painted flats as early as 1650 as the plays themselves got more and more elaborate and spectacular. Um, so Spanish Golden Age, as far as I know, had like the jump on like that kind of backdrop type of stuff. Um, in the oldest surviving uh, Corrale de Comedia in Almagro, um, you can see upstage there are like two to three doors on the main floor and then there's an upper there's an above um again very similar to an english indoor playhouse um with like windows and stuff and a little bit of a balcony um but it is unclear to me at least if people actually sat there or if it was still used as a performance space that above area or if they just used the bottom um so the stage was installed at one end of these courtyards uh, against a back wall the front stage was the outdoor patio, at the end of which sat um, musketeers, which I think are similar to English gallants. Like these are like mm -hmm. town folk with weapons. <laughs> um, the balconies uh, and the windows of the adjoining houses that made these enclosed courtyards served as quarters for nobility to sit away from the dirty plebeians. Um, the on the upper floors uh were these uh places called desvanes which is which means attic um and they were really small really small quarters um for members of the church um and another casuela which again uh the casuelas is where the ladies had to be um the stage and the lateral galleries were protected by overhangs um and one thing i think they did that was really cool 
was from one side to the other, they strung up like these fabric, basically patio covers, right? (laughs) Like curtains. Yeah. To protect from like the direct heat of the sun, which I think is brilliant. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So like, again, they were reliant because it was an outdoor venue um, and they did these in matinees because like you do, you know, Um, but they, but they strung up these protections um, to keep the direct sunlight from like, you know, sunburning everybody. Uh, so it protected the folks that were in the middle who weren't already covered, which I think is so cool. So these performances could go on from four to six hours. They were structured in six. Yeah. They were structured in six different rounds. So there was this thing called the first act or the Loa, um, which is like a prologue. It was meant to get people like excited for the action and the characters to come. Then there was the opening round. Then they broke for food. There was a little bit of an appetizer. Then they went in for round two. Then there was a masquerade break called Hakaras, which means like song and dance. Uh, And then the third round and final act, like end of day. It was like a whole day of festivities. Yikes a Rooney Dooney. Yeah. 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 Um, and, And I think it's important to just like think about the building that these plays were written for just in the same way that, you know, we like to think about them for for the English plays that we talk about, right? Like knowing that the playwrights of the time started to write to accommodate the space, but also that some of these playwrights like Lope de Vega uh, and Cervantes um, were responsible for helping um, shape the space in the first place, right? Like taking these improvised courtyard spaces and being like, well, this is what we got. So they started writing for them and then theaters started being purpose built in that shape to accommodate them, which I think is kind of cool. Um, and you know, it helps me at least to picture like what, what it was written for and like where these villagers might come from and like how they might like, who knows, you know, what backdrop they might've used or, you know, um, if they were making, um, scenic flats and stuff already, like what they might've made Fuente Obahuna look like, um, which is a big departure from what we're used to with like very minimalist English theater, right. <laughs> which is like beg, borrow and steal, some big furniture when necessary, minimal props. The facade of the building doesn't change, right? They actually they actually bothered to like build sets and stuff. Um, okay, so my final thing, and this is major, is translation. Yep. Um, translation matters. Uh, I mean, we've talked a lot on this pod about like textual instability generally, right? And and you know, think about the technology they had. This was, even though it was Spain, it was still at the same time period. So plays started out being written by hand. They were maybe, maybe not handed off to be recopied, you know, by some scriveners. And then they were sent to print and whatever. Um, So all of the normal changes, the introductions of changes happen anyway, but they happen in Spanish (laughs) in a, in a different language. And then when we who speak English are trying to get a hold of these plays that adds another layer of instability right um from from the translators right so a lot of these spanish golden age plays remain untranslated i mean jesus the their herculean effort of trying to translate tens of thousands of plays i can't yeah like they're not uh-huh. all bangers i totally get why <laughs> some would remain untranslated yeah like i get that that's fine not knocking that, um, but like some that, but some they might be awesome, 
you know, and they remain untranslated. So unless you're fluent in Spanish uh, and have access that way, like you're, we're never going to see them. Right. Mm -hmm. um, they're not going to pop up in your regular like English speaking library or bookstore. Um, and the more successful ones like Fuente Obahuna, like Life is a Dream, uh, have been translated many times over the centuries. Um, some of those translations are in the public domain now. Some are not. So if you're producing one of these, you need to be careful about that because the translator gets royalties the same way a playwright does sometimes. Uh, but also like, you know, the, the values of that translator, mm -hmm. the um, linguistic prowess of that translator, like how good they are at their job um, and how facile they are with uh, the language, right? And, and being able to... to make sense of the best they can of the idioms, right? That sometimes don't always translate the best. The verse. Some translations are are terrible and they don't maintain the verse. And Fuente Obuhuna is written in verse in Spanish. Um, so if you find a translation that's like not, that's in prose, like run, run fast, run far. It's not going to do you any favors, I don't think. Um, but, you know, so like, Finding a translator that whose work that you trust is tough. Um, all this to say, like, do your homework on that translator. See what other works they've translated. See, you know, just like their overall body of work, whether people recommend them. Um, because that's going to affect your production, right? That's going to have a huge effect on on everything that you do. Like, if, down, down to the words. Like, that's foundational, you know? Um, I found a resource called outofthewings.org, um, which is all about bringing Spanish plays uh, into, into English consciousness, basically. Um, and so it's like an extended uh, annotated bibliography of a bunch of Spanish Golden Age plays um, of like what the plot is, and here's a PDF, and here's all of the different translations that exist of this play. Um, so it's been, it was very helpful for me um, in just sampling a few of the translations. Mm -hmm. Um, but also if you can get your hands on a Caridad speech translation, run, don't walk to mm -hmm. go get it. She is the bomb.com. Mm -hmm. Her translations are amazing mm -hmm. and they're feminist and they're fucking rad. Cause she is fucking rad. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> I don't think she's yet had the opportunity to do like a full, <laughs> a full, like really fat anthology of Spanish plays, but she's done a few. She's definitely got at least like one book where she's translated like three to four of them in a collection. Um, so go and find those at the very least, but like, you know, find a translator that you can trust because it, oh man, it matters. It matters so, so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So think about that when you're, when you're doing one of these plays, that's the biggest thing is the translator who the hell translated it. Very good. That's it. That's what I got. Okay. Let's gossip. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, there's so much gossip. Uh, there's a little bit of gossip. Um, all right. So Oregon Shakes uh, has their, you know, not any more brand new um, artistic director, but still mm -hmm. kind of new, uh, Nataki mm -hmm. Garrett. Uh, who has been receiving death threats based on mm -hmm. the direction she's taking um, the theater in, uh, which is some hot bullshit because mm -hmm. the, the thing that people are mad about is 
seeing not white actors and not white playwrights. Um, and that has been going on for years. Yeah. Oh, it's like, been doing like they've been doing that for a long time. Like a long time. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, so NPR did a, a a story on OSF and and their diversity initiatives and how people are responding to that, which is, you know, really fucking negatively because white supremacy is a fucking drug. Um, and that came that that story dropped uh, end of September. We'll link to mm-hmm. it if you want to go read it. I do recommend reading it. Um, yeah, for and, sure. And, you know, getting getting the whole story. Um, speaking of large theaters, the globe, you've heard of the globe. Who? Yeah. The, the little, the tiny little, you know, small, small regional theater company in London, you know. Oh yeah. That little one across the river. Gotcha. That one. Yeah. Um, (laughs) so they, this season right now they're doing, what's it called? I Joan. Um, which is a riff on one Henry six. I'm, I think it's, I think it is not one Henry six. I think it's a riff on one Henry six. Anyway. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, so the, uh, the, the, the actor who is playing Joan is non-binary. Um, and I believe that the, the play has been written to to also reflect non-binary stuff and uh yesterday not yesterday maybe friday so a couple days ago maybe maybe like eight or nine days ago when y'all are hearing this um before the americans woke up (laughs) so we missed this entirely because we were sleeping because time differences um the globe had posted a video on Twitter question mark that was pro trans maybe, but also was not really trans inclusive, maybe had not been filmed with um, actual trans people in mind and was more of a, like a a marketing ploy of like, Mm -hmm. Hey, look, we're doing cool things with gender and we love trans people. Come see I Joan. Um, and then, because England, uh, the the turfs got involved. Oh no! And the globe took it down. What? Yeah, not not because of like, or at least again, the Americans missed this entirely, and I'm just I'm like piecing this all together. Like we were literally asleep. We were literally like, asleep. Like it okay. was only up for a couple <laughs> wow, of hours. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um. So it it sounds like the the complaints were from people who were like trans people don't exist or shouldn't exist and not from actual trans people being like, hey, this is not actually as sensitive as you seem to think it is. It seems like like it was transphobic and not just poorly conceived. And maybe you're you're doing a little harm to trans people. Um, so they caved and they took down this, this video. So, um, the, they had apparently also, uh, commissioned, um, a blog post about I Joan from Colby Gordon, who is one of the leading, like 
early modernists who also does trans studies. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm sure that there's a more eloquent way to say that field, but it's, mm-hmm. it's like, it's early modern trans is, is what, mm-hmm. um, what he does. And uh, happens to be a trans man himself. So they commissioned this blog post uh, about I Joan um, that is so fucking good. Uh, or sorry, it's about Joan of Arc, not not exactly about I Joan, but more about mm-hmm. Joan of Arc. Um, and then they never posted it. What? Yeah, because it was like maybe too incendiary or too pro trans or like <laughs> wait how did you read it then how do you know it's good colby posted it on twitter ah yeah okay. he took it upon himself to yes. post well good for him uh-huh so that's a fun thing uh and then like other other people in the replies um to to colby's tweet uh were saying like oh yeah they they also asked me to contribute stuff for this and then didn't publish the thing that's so messed up (laughs) yeah it's really shitty and it's not a good look and as far as i can tell there has been no like official globe statement about any of it so that's a thing um on a yeah on a more fun note however um ian smith has got a new book out uh i think it's it's out now or if not now very 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 soon yeah i think i tried to get a copy i don't think it's quite out yet but man it is in my shopping cart ready to lock and load yeah it's out in december um yeah so it is called black shakespeare colon reading and misreading race and i am so fucking hyped for this book i have i've I've been yeah yeah, i've been lucky enough to hear um bits and pieces of it at conferences and talks over the last uh four or five years um and it's it is gonna be it oh it's gonna be so good it's gonna be and the cover is amazing it's such a good cover anyway so like keep your eyes out and yeah i feel like it's gonna be big it's gonna be like the next things of darkness like it's gonna be yeah yeah that it seems like it's going to be that influential on yes shakespeare and race yeah you know yeah discussions and conversations ian smith does not fuck around on shakespeare and race and has been he's he's part of the the vanguard of um pre-modern critical race studies uh Mm -hmm. so i am Mm -hmm. i am hella hyped for this that is so exciting Um, yeah i can't wait to read it and then my final bit is like, if you are in the Shenandoah Valley on October 21st and you want to hear me listen, if you want to hear me listen, if you want to hear me talk, if you want to listen to me, hear you listen about talking, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh-huh. I'm going to be, I'm going to be at the ASC on the 21st, uh, talking right about incest in Pericles and probably some other things, but incest is the only part that I've written so far. Um, at what time am I talking, Aubrey? Five o'clock. It's part of our Friday Night Lights On series, which is a pre-show lecture, workshop, enrichment, etc. series to help get you ready, get you primed for the show that's happening that night or that weekend. Nice. So it's going to be awesome. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to prep you for all the incest and none of the rest of the play. It's <laughs> all like 10 minutes of incest at the beginning of the yep. play and that's it. <laughs> Nothing else. You're going to be like, what, what the hell that's is great. this play? And I'm going to be like, incest, baby. And then you'll be like, but the incest was over like two hours ago. And I'll be like, was yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> it's never over. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm excited about that. Yay. Um, I have only one thing to contribute, which is uh, something Jess alluded to before, which is that the Hedgepig Ensemble Theater has dropped its 2022 titles in the Expand the Canon collection. They sound so cool. They are fire. Um, I immediately dug through it and I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to definitely use at least one of these in our staged reading series next year. Cool. Because um, they sound fucking great. Uh, and yeah, it's a couple of at least one uh, Spanish Golden Age play. There's an offer Ben in there. There's uh, and then some some actually, you know, 20th century stuff too. a couple of them. So it's very, very cool. I'm, I'm just excited about that. So check that out at their website. And uh, that's our gossip. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. What a day. Uh, thank you folks so much for listening. We hope you leave this podcast more informed about Spanish Golden Age drama than when you started. Yeah, uh, come back next time. We are revisiting Troilus and Cressida. Okay. Yeah, we'll have some things to say about it, probably. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. No, I will find things to yeah. say yeah. about Troilus and Cressida. I. I will. We'll also, yeah, we, we will. We will have <laughs> thoughts, and they they might even be entertaining. They um, might. Yeah, Trails and Cressida. Like it's been, I don't even know how long it's been since our one, our one hundred and one so on that, long. but ages. At least since like season two, maybe was when we got around to it. Yeah, it was with Molly. I yeah, know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. God bless. Yeah, it's been a yeah. It's, it's yeah. been a minute. So yeah. cool yep. for all two of the TNC fans out there. <laughs> Molly, Molly, and a friend. Yeah. <laughs> we love you, Molly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Deuces. Whamlet out. Bye. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. For show notes and other stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing holla, H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or at hurlyburlyshake, no S, on Twitter. The land on which I live and work, colonially known as Stanton, Virginia, is the unceded territory of the Monacan Confederation of Nations, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. The traditional custodians of the land on which I live are the Lenape Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Learn about where you live at native-land.ca. Get involved at ndncollective.org and find out more about the Landback campaign at landback.org. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. The the semi was protruding into the audience. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, wow. <okay>. Sorry. <laughs> Carry on. I'm not. I'm, you know, no, I walked right into that.